0: London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Jason Palmer, science correspondent, and I'm talking today with Paul Markilli, our innovation editor, and Tim Cross, the other science correspondent, about hybrids in the sky and apps that scan for diseases. First, let's start with you, Paul. You're writing this week about hybrid and electric planes, but I have to say, I feel like I've heard this story a lot of times before. What's different about it this time around?
1: Well, you've probably heard of small ones. There's a number of solar-powered electric airplanes. There's one flying around the world at the moment. There's also small electric aircraft, one crossed the channel recently, and that was built by Airbus, a big European aerospace manufacturer. And in fact, that is going into production, and you'll be able to buy one in 2017 and take your private pilot's license in it as a pilot training aircraft. But there's a bigger, longer horizon with this technology where... Aircraft designers who indeed look and have to a long way in the future because their products fly for a long time are looking at a world where we may well fly in electric airliners of small and big dimensions.
0: Now, let's make a distinction though. As you say, there's the the solar-powered kind. That's kind of a a very different beast. Certainly doesn't look like the kind of thing you'd put many people in. One person probably. (laughs) There's the Diddy one which you might get your pilot license in, but there's also hybrids and so on. So how might that come about? This is not just propellers, batteries, plane. There's more to it than that.
1: There's a lot more to it than that. The big reason why um, aircraft designers are interested in electric and hybrid propulsion is that you can start to change the shape of an airplane. You can put the engines in different places. You can use, for instance, as NASA is testing the idea at the moment, having a string of small propellers all the way along the leading edge of an aircraft. And within a decade, that may lead to small commuter airplanes with 18, 20 propellers or so small ones all along the leading edge and and that produces a higher airflow over the wing so you can take off in a shorter distance and land on shorter runways and fly much more efficiently right up to about sort of 2050 where you start to see that idea coming on board with uh, a futuristic Airbus design that would actually have big fan engines uh, blended into the body that would also increase greatly the efficiency of that aircraft. And so we're getting away from the big mahoosive engine hung from beneath
0: the wing and towards some sort of along the edge and so on, and even some that, that retract into the wing. I see uh, I see in this piece here that the pictures with this are, are kind of, as you say, it, it changes altogether the, the whole
1: conception of how these things can be built. Exactly. The airplanes will look different because you can start to put things in different places. But also possibly sound different. And be very quiet because like an electric car, you can start to design the vehicle from scratch in different ways. And and, uh, you know, electric motors are rather good. They're, they're relatively simple compared to a jet engine in mechanical terms. And they, they're highly reliable. They can be made lighter weight. And so they, they're a, potentially a good thing to power a propeller or a fan jet on an aircraft.
2: Can I just butt in with a a stupid question? Bring bring us a stupid question, Tim. I have many. Um, So this particular one, with hybrid cars and electric cars, obviously the problem at the moment is range and the batteries aren't very good and the energy density is not as high as it is with petrol. Isn't this a bit of a show-stopping problem for planes? You want something that packs a load of energy into a, a pretty small space and batteries aren't that at the moment. For big ones that
1: might carry 20 to 50 to 100 people, yes, you would need better batteries. But, you know, if you're talking about something that's going to fly in 2050, it's quite possibly that we will have a big battery breakthrough by then that would enable that. There's also another enabling technology that will be required to do this, which is superconductivity to reduce to zero the electrical resistance required in some of these systems so you can build lighter components. But in the more near term, in the next decade or so for a small commuter aircraft, just the present rate of progress with battery technology could well deliver a powered storage system that would be suitable for a small commuter flight. So in a way, then,
0: this is the same story, perhaps, that was around 1973. I think it was the first battery-powered flight. We're still waiting on some big changes to the technology, but as you say, that's for the airliners and so on. In the meantime, though, we have good reason to believe that we're going to start seeing these things on the on the smaller and medium scale.
1: On the small scale, certainly so. There are a number of manufacturers who will start making small, light aircraft that are electrically powered. The bigger stuff, well, that will be hybrid, and and hybrid technologies are proving quite successful in cars as well. So you'd have a, a big airplane that may have one or two conventional jet engines, which will assist its takeoff and help power the battery when it's flying along. But in the cruise, when aircraft possibly don't need as much power, then the electric propulsion systems would suffice
0: and there's uh even more analogy i guess with the hybrid recuperating energy stuff these things can actually charge themselves also on landing i see in the piece so there's a lot of this that makes it just look like a flying version of the car thing that we've seen developed down the years
1: uh flying toyota prius yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) brilliant well we look forward to hearing more thanks for that now moving to you tim you've been working on a story about diabetic retinopathy let's start with what's that
2: Well, so as the name suggests, it's something that people who have diabetes often end up suffering from. So diabetes is a problem where you can't adequately control your blood sugar. In the short term, you can sort of keep that at bay and in check with diet and exercise and so on. But Diabetes its a chronic condition. There's no cure. You have it for a long time for life. And over the years, other things start to go wrong. And one of the most common is you get progressive damage to your retina. And over many, many years, you can end up losing some vision and even going blind altogether. And it's pretty common. So the the best guess is about 80% of people who have diabetes for a decade will start to develop like at least some signs of this.
0: And it can be treated if caught early?
2: Yeah. So if, if you catch it early, you can drastically slow down the progression the problem is early means really really early like before you can even see or notice any defects in your own vision so the only way to get it identified is to have a doctor take a photograph of your retina and then look at it and look for these sort of very subtle signs of just the beginnings of the damage and if you wait till problems with your own vision start to become obvious it's probably a bit too late.
0: But I know the kinds of stories you like. And the kinds of stories you like are the ones where somehow technology can help. So how can technology change the way this is done?
2: Big computers, artificial intelligence. So we've written about this quite a bit recently. There's been a lot of progress recently in a specific kind of artificial intelligence called machine learning. And even more specifically in a particular kind of machine learning called deep learning. And this is the kind of thing. You know, lots of the big computing companies, Google, Facebook, and all the rest, are pouring money into this to try and serve people better ads and to try and do image filtering and to try and do voice recognition, all that kind of thing. Um, a lot of the big sort of demonstrations of how good this is have been a little bit trivial. So the famous one that everyone remembers is a couple of years ago, Google strapped a computer to a chair and treated it to this sort of rather inhumane treatment of making it watch thousands and thousands of hours of YouTube videos on loop, and eventually the poor machine sort of just before it broke down in tears, it developed the ability to spot some things that regularly turn up in YouTube videos. Like cats. Cats. Gotta exactly. be cats. Cats. Skateboarding cats, you know, smiling cats, cats falling off wardrobes, whatever. Um, no one had told it that cat was a category, which is what made this really interesting. It just saw this sort of collection, these small furry things. They were frequent enough. It decided they, you know, deserved a category of themselves. And so if you like, you could say the computer taught itself to recognize what a cat looks like. And Presumably
0: where we're going with this is that you can define, you can let these things to find a new category, which is diabetic retinopathy. Is that the
2: idea? Pretty much, yes. That's it. So an outfit called the California Healthcare Foundation. They're one of many, many people who are looking into using artificial intelligence to help with medical diagnosis because one of the things that deep learning is very good at is recognizing things in images a lot of medical diagnosis you're looking at you know cat scans mri scans x-rays whatever to try and spot something that's wrong so exactly the idea is um you know can we build a computer such that we show it a bunch of images of people's retinas and it can go you know you've got retinopathy you haven't you have you have you haven't and it will be much cheaper than training a human doctor to do the job because once you've got the machine once you've got the algorithm i should say you can copy it an infinite number of times Uh, And also, crucially, it will be a lot faster.
0: So this foundation then has a basement full of AI geeks, is that right?
2: Uh, No, they don't. But luckily, these days, you can crowdsource almost anything. And it turns out you can even crowdsource advanced artificial intelligence programs. So uh, there's a website out there called Kaggle, which I should say, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, was founded by a guy called Anthony Goldblum, who used to be an intern uh, at The Economist.
0: That is very, very full disclosure, Tim, but but go on.
2: Uh, It is. It makes me feel a little bad about the direction my life has taken, but still. But anyway, so on Kaggle, the idea is anyone can upload a challenge, an AI or a statistics challenge, and people from all over the world, so everyone from grad students to companies to professors, will will try and solve it for a cash prize. And that's exactly what they did in this case. So the California Healthcare Foundation and the University of California, who work quite closely with them, they had a big trope of images of pictures of people's retinas which is one of the things you need to train these programs and getting hold of of a a good sort of training set like that is one of the difficult things.
0: Sort of in analogy to the reams and reams of YouTube videos of cats. Exactly,
2: yes. It's exactly the same thing. They were in the position, the lucky position of having one of these things. They uploaded it to the website and just sat back and let the users have at it and then within five months the result was an algorithm that was as good as a human doctor at deciding whether or not somebody had this disease.
1: But is there a problem there? Because the the medical community is highly regulated. Um, does this have to go through any testing or
2: authorization? It does. I mean, th- that is one of the problems. They're highly regulated and also quite conservative for, I guess, pretty good reasons. So yeah, ideally, w- what they would like to do is deploy this stuff in clinics all over California. And they, they specifically deal with people who, you know, can't afford the kind of private health insurance that you need in the US. And one of the big advantages from their point of view of getting a computer to do this is that you can get the diagnosis instantly. So people who are working you know, low-paid jobs from which it's kind of hard to take leave sometimes, they only need to come in once. It helps them stick to the treatment plan and so on. This is what they want to do. The problem, as you said, there's all these all these regulatory issues. So one of them is the same issue that you get with driverless cars, which is if a computer makes a wrong diagnosis and it has really catastrophic consequences. You know, if a human does that, the worst comes to the worst. You can take them to court. You can sue them. If a computer does that, what's the sort of legal liability situation? You know, do you sue the doctor in whose surgery the computer was? Do you sue the makers of the program? You know, no this one... This former
0: intern. How about him? Yeah, well,
2: yeah. I mean, no one really knows how, how any of this works. And then the. the second sort of related one is that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, which sort of regulates medical products in the U.S., they're only just now getting around to this whole question of, well, we should probably think about licensing software, and if we're going to license software, how do we do that? And it's obviously very different from licensing a drug or a piece of medical equipment. So we're at this slightly weird situation where the technology seems to work pretty well, and it's being held up by sort of regulatory issues. I, I don't imagine they'll last. We'll probably see this turning up in clinics fairly soon, but not, alas, immediately.
0: And this certainly won't be the last time we see this kind of development from AI, indeed from deep learning into clinical practice.
2: Well, this is... So people are really excited about deep learning because this idea of using computers to sort of diagnose and and to interpret medical images, it's not that new. People have been kicking this around for a decade or more. The problem is the AI software hasn't really been up to it in the past. And the interesting thing about deep learning, if you talk to people who work in AI, it seems to be universally applicable. In the past, you'd have to tweak the algorithms a lot for every specific problem. Like Deep learning, to an extent, you can throw lots of different problems at it, and it'll, with a big enough training set and in enough time, it'll learn to perform pretty well. So yeah, there are all kinds of things you can do with this. There's all the other medical diagnostics. The guys at Kaggle have another interesting one where you... So oceanographers, apparently, when they're trying to figure out how healthy a Stretch of ocean is, they take one of the ways you can do it is you take pictures from the air and you sort of categorize the like the color and you look for algal blooms in the sea and you try and work out how many single cell organisms are in there, and it's sort of classic grad student work. It's a drudge. It's boring. It takes ages, but someone has to do it, right? And again, there's a competition up to try and get machines to do that. And they can do it thousands of times faster. You don't even need to give them coffee. And yeah, um, this, this is this is this was always the great. promise,
0: right? The <laughs> the is taking the drudgery away and perhaps ending that embarrassing question at the doctor of hey doc any idea what this is <laughs> thank you for that tim um, and thanks paul that i'm afraid is all we have time for this time around you've been listening to babbage for more news on science and technology go to economist.com in london this is the economist
1: the economist